Chapter Six of Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal by Sarah J. Richardson. Chapter Six The Grey Nunnery. The Grey Nunnery is situated on St. Paul Street, Montreal. It is four stories high, besides the basement. It occupies a large space of ground. I do not know how much, but it is a very extensive building. The roof is covered with tin, with a railing around it, finished at the top with sharp points that look like silver, about a foot in length and three feet apart. Over the front door there is a porch, covered with a profusion of climbing plants, which give it a beautiful appearance. The building stands in a large yard, surrounded on all sides by a high fence, so high indeed that people who pass along the street can see no part of the nunnery except the silver points on the roof. The top of this fence is also finished with long iron spikes. Everything around the building seems expressly arranged to keep the inmates in and intruders out. In fact, it would be nearly impossible for anyone to gain a forcible or clandestine admission to any part of the establishment. There are several gates in the fence, how many I do not know but the front gate opens on St. Anne Street. Over each of the gates hangs a bell, connected with the bells in the rooms of the superior and abbesses, which ring whenever the gate is opened. There is always a guard of two men at each gate who walk up and down with guns upon their shoulders. While attempting to give a brief description of this building, I may as well say that it is constructed with non-conductors between the walls, so that the ringing of a bell or the loudest shriek could not be heard from one room to the other. The reader will please bear this in mind, as the reason for the precaution will appear in the course of my narrative. The priest who met us as we left the boat conducted us to the front door and rang the bell. Soon a lady appeared, who drew a slide in the middle of the door, exposing one pane of glass. Through this she looked, to see who was there, and when satisfied on this point, opened the door. Here let me remark that since I left the nunnery, I have heard of another class of people, who find it convenient to have a slide in their door, and if I am not very much mistaken, the character of the two houses, or rather the people who live in them, are very much alike, whether they are nunneries of private families, Catholics or Protestants. Honest people have no need of a slide in the door, and where there is so much precaution, may we not suppose that something behind the curtain imperatively calls for it? It is an old adage, but true notwithstanding, that where there is concealment there must be something wrong. In the hall opposite the front door 
were two other doors, with a considerable space between them. The right-hand door was opened by the door-tender, and we entered a room furnished in the plainest manner, but everything was neat and in perfect order. Instead of chairs on two sides of the room, a long bench was fastened to the sides of the house. They were neither painted nor cushioned, but were very white, as was also the floor, on which there was no carpet. Beside the door stood a basin of holy water, and directly opposite an image of the Saviour extended on the cross, which they call a crucifix. Here we were left a few moments. Then the doorkeeper came back, and asked us if we would like to see the black cloisters, and if so, to follow her. She led us back into the hall, and in the space between the two doors that I mentioned, she unlocked a bar, and pulling it down, touched a spring, and immediately a little square door slid back into the ceiling. Across this door, or window, or whatever they called it, were strong bars of iron about one inch apart. Through this aperture we were allowed to look, and a sad sight met my eyes. As many as fifty disconsolate-looking ladies were sitting there, who were called black nuns, because they were preparing to take the black veil. They were all dressed in black, a black cap on the head, and a white bandage drawn across the forehead, to which another was attached that passed under the chin. These bandages they always wore, and were not allowed to lay aside. They sat, each one with a book in her hand, motionless as so many statues. Not a finger did they move, not an eye was raised, but they sat gazing upon the page before them, as intently as though life itself depended upon it. Our guide informed us that they were studying the black book preparatory to taking the black veil and entering the cloister. This book was quite a curiosity. It was very large, with a white cover, and around the edge a black border about an inch wide. The black book, or Praxis Sacra Romance Inquisitionis, is always the model for that which is to succeed it. This book is a large manuscript volume, in folio, and is carefully preserved by the head of the Inquisition. It is called Libro Nero, the black book, because it has a cover of that color, or as an inquisitor explained to me, Libro Necro, which, in the Greek language, signifies the book of the dead. In this book is the criminal code, with all the punishments for every supposed crime, also the mode of conducting the trial, so as to elicit the guilt of the accused, and the manner of receiving accusations. I had this book in my hand on one occasion, and read therein the proceedings relative to my own case, and I moreover saw, in this same volume, some very astounding particulars. For example, in the list of punishments I read concerning the bit, 
or as it is called by us, the mordakia, which is a very simple contrivance to confine the tongue and compress it between two cylinders composed of iron and wood and furnished with spikes. This horrible instrument not only wounds the tongue and occasions excessive pain, but also from the swelling it produces, frequently places the sufferer in danger of suffocation. This torture is generally had recourse to in cases considered as blasphemy against God, the Virgin, the Saints, or the Pope, so that according to the Inquisition it is as great a crime to speak disparagingly of a Pope, who may be a very detestable character, as to blaspheme the holy name of God. Be that as it may, this torture has been in use till the present period, and to say nothing of the exhibitions of this nature which were displayed in Romanga in the time of Gregory the Sixteenth, by the Inquisitor Ancarini, in Umbria by Stefanelli, Salva and others, we may admire the inquisitorial seal of Cardinal Ferretti, the cousin of his present holiness, who condescended more than once to employ these means when he was bishop of Rieti and Fermo. Dealings with the Inquisition by the Rev. Giacinto Achille, D.D., late prior and visitor of the Dominican Order, head professor of theology and vicar of the master of the sacred apostolic palace, etc., etc., page 81. Our curiosity being satisfied as far as possible, we returned to the side-room, where we waited long for the Lady Superior. When at length she came, she turned to me first, as I sat next the door, and asked me if I had anything to show in proof of my former good character. I gave her my card. She looked at it and led me to the other side of the room. The same question was asked of every girl in turn. When it was found that only four beside myself had cards of good behavior, the other six presented cards which she said were for bad behavior. They were all placed together on the other side of the room, and as the superior was about to lead them away, one of them came towards us, saying that she did not wish to stay with those girls, she would rather go with us. The superior drew her back, and replied, No, child, you cannot go with those good girls, you would soon learn them some of your naughty ways. If you will do wrong, you must take the consequences. Then, seeing that the child really felt very bad, she said in a kinder tone, When you learn to do right, you shall be allowed to go with good girls, but not before. I pitied the poor child, and for a long time I hoped to see her come to our room, but she never came. They were all led off together, and that was the last I ever saw of any of them. I was taken, with the other four girls, to a room on the second floor. Here we found five cribs, one for each of us, 
in which we slept. Our food was brought to us regularly, consisting of one thin slice of fine wheat bread for each of us, and a small cup of milk. It was only in the morning, however, that the milk was allowed us, and for dinner and supper we had a slice of bread and a cup of water. This was not half enough to satisfy our hunger, but we could have no more. For myself I can say that I was hungry all the time, and I know the others were also, but we could not say so to each other. We were in that room together five weeks, yet not one word passed between us. We did sometimes smile, or shake our heads, or make some little sign, though even this was prohibited, but we never ventured to speak. We were forbidden to do so, on pain of severe punishment, and I believe we were watched all the time, and kept there for a trial of our obedience. We were employed in peeling a soft kind of wood for beds, and filling the ticks with it. We were directed to make our own beds, keep our room in the most perfect order, and all our work in the middle of the floor. The superior came up every morning to see that we were thoroughly washed, and every Saturday she was particular to have our clothes and bed linen all changed. As every convenience was provided in our rooms or the closets adjoining, we were not obliged to go out for anything, and for five weeks I did not go out of that room. My bed was then brought from Quebec, and we were moved to a large square room with four beds in it, only two of which were occupied. We were then sent to the kitchen, where in future we were to be employed in cleaning sauce, scouring knives and forks, and such work as we were able to do. As we grew older, our tasks were increased with our strength. I had no regular employment, but was called upon to do any of the drudgery that was to be done about the house. The superior came to the kitchen every morning after prayers, and told us what to do through the day. Then in her presence we were allowed five minutes conversation, a priest also being present. For the rest of the day we kept a profound silence, not a word being spoken by any of us unless in answer to a question from some of our superiors. In one part of the building there was a school for young ladies, who were instructed in the various branches of education usually taught in Catholic schools. Many of the scholars boarded at the nunnery, and all the cooking and washing was done in the kitchen. We also did the cooking for the saloons in Montreal. If this did not keep us employed, there were corn brooms and brushes to make, and thus every moment was fully occupied. Not a moment of leisure, no rest, no recreation, but hard labor, and the still more laborious religious exercises filled up the time. It was sometimes very annoying to me to devote so many hours to mere external forms, for I felt, even when very young, 
that they were of little worth. But it was a severe trial to our temper to make so many pies, cakes, puddings, and all kinds of rich food which we were never allowed to taste. The priests, superiors, and the scholars had every luxury they desired, but the nuns who prepared all their choice dainties were never permitted to taste anything but bread and water. I am well aware that this statement will seem incredible, and that many will doubt the truth of it, but I repeat it, the nuns in the grey nunnery, or at least those in the kitchen with me, were allowed no food except bread and water, or, in the case of illness, water gruel. End of chapter 6